This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey everybody, Craig here. Andrew read Infinite Jest for our 200th episode. And Hello. In, oh, he's here. Oh, wow, I didn't even see you over there. And in keeping <laughs> with our pattern, our tradition, our belief system of 50th episode anniversaries, uh, we decided to put an explicit tag on this episode. I'm not sure why. We haven't even recorded it yet. But Andrew has a lot of feelings. I just assume that those feelings are going to get explicit. I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> it feels like something that could easily get explicit. We're not planning to get explicit, but this week we won't hold ourselves back. <laughs> hold on to your butts. Hundred books and, and I, I would read, read two hundred more. Just to be the man who read two hundred four hundred books, books <laughs> to fall down at your door. Welcome to Overdue Pod. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And it is our <laughs> It is our 200th episode. It is our rough and rowdy, down and dirty episode. It's going to get so rowdy. It's going to get so rowdy up in here. Um, those of you who've been listening for 200 episodes, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I you're welcome. I'm sorry. Um, thank you. But you, sorry. Sh- you should know by now that every 50th episode we try to commemorate the occasion. It's like just off a year. It's a big round number. So we try to do something special. The first 3 of them <laughs> were... The first 3 of many, I hope, but like to put it another way, 100% of all anniversary episodes that we've done so far were dummy sex books in the 50 shades series. Yes. So we're not and, and some people like a lot of people actually Ugh. like to and like through today even though we had announced our plans a while ago <laughs> weeks ago <laughs> we're asking if we were going to we're or like saying that we should have read gray which is the the first book 50 shades of gray told from christian's perspective yes and like it's it's so gross uh-huh and not fun that we uh-huh. ca- we just can't like i no. can't say that we'll never ever read it for any reason ever but it's not i don't want to like go back to that universe i think i've had enough i've yeah that i've got to use my safe word here's my fear the 50 shades series i worry that if i read gray i'm gonna have a reaction to it that follows me to the grave like Whatever I say about the book is going to end up on my tombstone, and I'm scared to unlock that power. Well, and like, and and does reading gray make your proximity to your own grave like closer? It probably does. <laughs> it probably does. So we're going to talk about Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace this week. That's the book you read, right, Andrew? Ah, uh, yes. Thank I, you for yes. not surprising me. I think so. On this our 200th episode. Mm-hmm. Um. 
We're going to talk about that in a second. We're going to talk about the author, David Foster Wallace. We're going to talk about the book. the day of my daughter's 200th episode. (laughs) (laughs) But Andrew, before we dive in, like, I just want to ask, like, how's how's week 200 feel how's episode two it's not it's been more than that we missed a couple weeks it's, when we were young but well and then a bunch of bonus episodes so i think yeah. we've actually oh, caught right. up a little you're bit right. yeah so like how's it feel what have you learned what have you loved what do you what do you see for the future <laughs> answer all these questions right now we've done a lot of podcasts and we will continue doing podcasts in the future great that People like what we're doing, I guess. That's cool. That's always super gratifying. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even if sometimes we record an episode and then we hit the stop button and I'm I'm like, well, that one didn't go great. <laughs> I am always surprised when we do those episodes and we get like a really positive reaction. Because we do. Like that happens more often than not with the episodes that we record and go what the heck happened in there yeah we come out of the recording booth like sweating and crying and all of a sudden it's a good piece of content (laughs) it's like it it oscillates between that and us reading people's favorite book and just not liking it as much as they wanted us to and let me like we talked about this last week and so let me reiterate because i think it's gonna be it's it's gonna be a thing because infinite jest is a book that people have opinions about hey our perspective as we read books it's like it's not an academic perspective it's very much like a lay person perspective Mm -hmm. like we are not english majors we are not scholars we are just a couple of dudes reading books yeah, we're not even people who like try to publish books ourselves. There are there are a couple of shows out there that are similar and they're like from authors. Right. And that's a different perspective. Right. And I and we both write to some extent, but but not books. But not books. And 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 yeah, so so what you're going to get with this Infinite Jest episode is like my thoughts and like to a lesser extent I guess Craig's thoughts and reactions. <laughs> Like, well, because you read it, you've read it, but you read it a while ago. Like I, it's like I like the phrase to a lesser extent, Craig's thoughts. Like yeah. that bracket that and like, well, just like your thoughts are further removed from the thing. Correct. You, you My opinions once removed. Ago. Yes. Yes. Yeah, secondhand opinions. Uh huh. Talk to your kids about secondhand opinions. Backseat opinions. Don't be a backseat opinionator. <laughs> But but yeah, like if your if your favorite book is Infinite Jest, I can't promise that you won't get mad. Hopefully, in my reactions to certain things, you will see your own reactions to your own like first read through. Sure, sure. Reflected back at you. Yeah, this is a book not without its baggage. Like, and we're gonna get into that. Well, so believe me, (laughs) believe me. Um. I think, what did I you mean, you want to talk about Dave Foster Wallace? You want to just talk about him? You yeah. Why don't you talk about him most? Because I I don't know a lot about him, frankly. Well, if I, you know me, Andrew, yeah, I do you know, know you. that I love the Socratic method. So first, I'm going to start Wait, by did asking, I know that? didn't you? I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna ask what you knew about David Foster Wallace coming into this book. I knew that he struggled with addiction 
Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that he committed suicide in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, did Was that he did commit suicide, right? He it wasn't did, like an OD? Yes. He did okay. commit suicide, and he had attempted suicide multiple times throughout his life. Because the, the About This Author page just it says he died in 2008, which is... Yeah. That's... It's... Like, it's fine, I guess, for an official About This Author page, whatever. But I don't... It's something about that sort of, like, whitewashing, especially at the... Especially to cap, like, a thousand pages of prose that deal explicitly with addiction and depression and suicide to just kind of erase that or, like, gloss over it seems wrong to me somehow. But, like, that's... Uh. I, I hmm, that's an interesting point that I hadn't considered. Yeah, it does because it certainly. I did not read the book while David Foster Wallace was alive. David Foster Wallace took his own life when he was forty six. He was born in nineteen sixty two. Well, I think a lot of people like there there as I as I looked around for because people's experiences reading this book is mm-hmm. like there are a lot of stories about people trying to read or reading this book. <laughs> uh huh. Um. And I think a lot of people that like summer of 2009, like after he, after he killed himself. Yes. Like a lot of people decided, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to take the plunge. I'm going to do it. Yeah. I had actually, um, I had heard of David Foster Wallace before he passed away. Um, we attended Kenyon college. We got some lovely notes from Kenyon in the past week. So shout out to them. I'll talk about that more at the end of the episode. Um, he delivered a commencement speech in, I believe, 2006, 2005, 2006, uh, that has since been, like, published as an essay called This is Water, which is, like, a famous commencement speech. If you know anyone who went to Kenyon or another liberal arts college, a YouTube video of that speech will show up every May or so yeah, on right. your and Facebook and I think feed. periodically it'll get taken down for rights issues or something, yep. but it, it keeps, it keeps respawning. It's and got, it's, it's got a lot of lives. And it's a good, does. it's a good speech, um... In 2009, you're right, Andrew, there was an online book club started by Matthew Baldwin uh, called Infinite Summer, where folks were encouraged to read about 75 pages a week from June to dis- June to dis- June to September, excuse me. Um, yeah, that's a lot. And it's I, a, it's a, I, I kind of, so September is a super busy month for me, and I have, I have written... I think in my my three biggest pieces this month that I've written by themselves, I've written probably thirty five thousand words. Sure, which is not far off from novel length. No, like normal novel length, not David Foster Wallace no- novel length. <laughs> but like, so I I have been reading Infinite just since like June or so, and I yeah. had been. I had been tackling it, you know, five, 10 pages at a time over the course of multiple reading sessions. But then in September, stuff got serious. And so I think I have read the like easily 75 to 80% of it in September. It's like by itself, which is nuts as I've been, as I've been doing other stuff. And then the last probably third of it, I've read in the last 72 hours. He, that's that's impressive. Which will I mean we'll talk about a little bit more at the end of the episode. But w- worth noting as we go in. I right. Think. Yeah, just yeah. like up front. Like I think this this is a book that benefits from like setting a pace. 
it, the two like, words much like it's it's yeah. a it's a very much a marathon and not a sprint like you you need to you you will enjoy it more if you pace yourself both because of how dense and difficult it is and because of particular like ticks and conventions of wallaces that i yes. think wear on the reader a little bit more when you're just like inhaling it what I'll also say, though, as someone, when I read it, I read a couple hundred pages, bounced off it for six months and came back, was getting on and off that horse was difficult. Like, slipping in and out of his voice is not easy. Um, so going off and reading something else or not reading anything because I was busy or whatever was going on and then trying to, like, hop back on this book was a little difficult. Um, yeah, I mean the structure which we'll talk again something we'll talk about a little bit more later, but the the chronology of the book is such that it sort of loops back around on itself. Yeah, it's no spoiler to say that this is a postmodern work of fiction yeah. that is like meta meta textual in a lot of ways and and very much aware that it's a book. Uh right. and I so, and yeah. so the book, like, it kind of ends in the middle of stuff, but then uh-huh. if you were to loop back around to the stuff, that, to the shit that I read in June, <laughs> if we're going to break the cussing seal on this there episode. It is. There it is. We said we were gonna. Yeah, we knew. Like, stuff, stuff that I read literally three months ago. Yeah. And I just have... I have a vague impression of it, but I've maybe forgotten it. And so it's like, it's a book that begs to be read a second time but also the last thing you want to do when you finish it is like go back around and do it again yeah no i hear it's that it's a very it's a very intent like intentionally difficult book so others let's just kind of get yeah hit me, hit me you, that's what i know about wallace hit me with what the what i should know i guess sure so he among other things, is an essayist, novelist, and other writer and teacher. Uh, other books you might know of his include A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again and Consider the Lobster, both of which are very well-regarded collections of essays of his that have appeared in magazines that include The New Yorker, GQ, Harper's Bazaar, or Harper's whatever, um, Playboy. I don't know. Is that what it's called? Harper's Bazaar? Yeah, Harper's know. Bazaar. It's just you, you go and it's a bunch of people in stalls like selling you is, different essays. Is and... that not a thing, though? Harper's Bazaar? I don't know. I'm the Paris gonna, Review. I'm, I'm just going to go on my list. Esquire. Uh, he wrote the, his first book, Broom of the System, while he was studying at Amherst College and later University of Arizona. So that... That first book, Broom in the System, is his like thesis project turned into book, which is a, a trope of you know mid to late twentieth century authors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when he was younger, so he was born in Ithaca, New York. He moved to Champaign Urbana. Something that might come up as we talk about this book, Andrew, is that he was a nationally ranked junior tennis player. Okay. Uh, or no, excuse me. Let me dial that down. A regionally ranked junior tennis player. Okay. Uh, and he okay. wrote several essays about tennis that I've read and, and really enjoyed as a fan of tennis, including uh, one later in his career about the like watching the great Roger Federer play tennis as like an act of holiness. Since, since when are you a fan of tennis? This, how do you not know? Wait a second. Do you not know this about me? 
I don't know. Sometimes you just start tweeting the names of people who play sports, and I just assume mm. it's always about baseball. Have you ever seen? Or like, tw- I'll yeah. mute you for like <laughs> for a bit, just for like a bit. If I've ever tweeted Vamos Rafa, it means that I'm rooting for Rafa. I mean, Vamos Nadal. is the way that that's actually pronounced. But yeah, sure. but when you're like cheering, you Vamos Rafa. And then you expect him to do well, but he's like injured now. He's not. So he's a tennis boy. He's a tennis boy that I really like. Anyway, what? I can't believe. I don't Um, think I don't know it. It just I did. I didn't realize like the extent. I didn't. I didn't know you would describe yourself as a fan of tennis. Sure, and tennis is something that has four major events every year, um, like horse racing. It only crops up every once in a while. Like if you're like really grinding out the tennis season, you might as well just be a tennis player. But right. as a fan, there are the four grand slams. Well, anyway, when, when start... was the last time that someone won the quadruple crown? Um, in tennis, Federer came close. Djokovic almost had a calendar slam. He might have had a calendar. Is that slam. what they call it? A calendar slam? Yeah. If you win all four major events in a single year. In a single calendar year, it's called a calendar slam. It's confusing okay. because the individual events are referred to as grand. And don't worry about it. Anyway, it's just, it's really sad when a tennis player hurts themselves and then they need to be euthanized <laughs> on the court. It just ends. Their legs break down. They can't walk anymore. It's horse jokes. So he uh, then in. 1991, this is Dave Foster Wallace, not Rafael Nadal, began teaching at Emerson, uh, later moved to Illinois State. I want to, I'm not quite sure where in there, I, I'm going to mess up the timeline. I think it was. You're talking about the timeline me. of Infinite Jest specifically? No, the timeline of Dave Foster Wallace. In 89, he was studying at Harvard for philosophy after receiving two degrees in creative writing. And. He dropped out and had to uh, check in, I guess is the best word, um, at McLean Hospital. It's a psychiatric hospital near Harvard for a substance addiction. He was 27. He then moved from McLean to a place called Granada House, and that is the model for Ennett House in Infinite Jest, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, while he was in that pro- that uh, rehabilitation process and kind of picking up his career from there. He started writing Infinite Jest in 1991. It was published in 1996. See, the, he, the info I have says that he started doing it in kind of the late 80s, but sure. the more significant like part of his progress on it happened in that 91 to 96 range. Yeah. Um, I also heard the story that for a book that's 1,200 pages long, his editor was able to cut 250 other pages out of the manuscript. I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions. What was in that? What? How did you cut a novel out of this book? <laughs> well, not even that. Like, how did you cut 250 pages out of this book on the grounds that it was inessential and leave out and like leave in so much of the stuff that's still in this book? Yeah, Jeez. I don't know. I don't know how that happened. Um, <sighs> after the book came out, and it is a, it is a doorstop of a book. It is thicker than any sandwich I've ever eaten. And I have the Kindle version, but as I was reading it, my Kindle did get slower and slower and slower. 
I'm holding up the book to the webcam so you can see that it is as thick as my forehead. No, it's a big it's a big book. And it's not even the hardcover. So It's a big old big book. That was published in 96 to much acclaim. Some people didn't like it, some people really liked it. It was a literary event in as much as you can have those. Um, in 97 he was a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. He then, in 2002, he began teaching in California. He married his wife, Karen Green, in 2004. Uh, Throughout that entire period, he was writing essays and teaching. Um, And then he, as we said, took his own life in 2008. There's, since that's happened, they published The Pale King, which is uh, the next, like, the follow-up to Infinite Jest uh, I think it was published in 2011 after they announced that they were going to do it in 2009. It's that's it's interesting because that was nominated for a Pulitzer in a year where no book received the Pulitzer, mm-hmm. which is a little dubious. Um, it's a messy book. I've made it a third of the way through once. I would well, like and so it, it's not as long as Infinite Jest. No, I think it may have gotten there eventually, but it definitely like it was Probably. decidedly not finished. Well, and I was reading about it as in prep for this show, and one of the kind of rightful critiques of that book, even though from what I re- like the prose, the quality of the prose is still there. The individual characterization, from what I can tell, is still there. Um, but it did not seem to have the same hooks that this book has just in terms of like places where interesting characters might congregate. Well, and if you if you read about the editing process in Infinite Jest, it does sound like there were individual, like not just scenes, but like entire plot threads in this book that were substantially rewritten at his editor's request. Like like his his editor and his editor for this book uh, Michael, Michael, P I E T S C H, pitch, pitch. Maybe? Let's sure. let's say pitch. Mike, yep. Michael, pitch. There is, there are like he's written about editing David Foster Wallace in this book, and the back and forth is like, yeah, I cut this, and I hate you for making me cut it. <laughs> <laughs> or like I have rewritten this literally eleven times, but yeah. if you try to make me cut it, I will cut you. Okay, <laughs> like, that's not something he said. That's just like that's just me. That's just me editorializing <laughs> a little bit. But um, okay. But yeah, like it was a, it was an intensive edit, and the fact that the Pale King did not get that back and forth between Wallace and its editor, I think, means that of course something like. Something essential is probably missing from that work. Yes, I think so. Not that it's like without value, but just. No, I think it is. Unfortunately, something something that's present in Infinite Jest is probably not present in that book. No. and, And I think something that is present in any reading of The Pale King is the fact that the author died before it saw publication, which in you apply in retrospect to Infinite Jest. Like, as you were saying earlier, like, you read this book knowing that this author took his own life now. You did not read that in the 1990s or the early 2000s. Yeah. And even in, you know, in retrospect, it seems like all of his inner demons, like screaming for a thousand pages. But maybe it didn't seem that way so much in the in the 90s. So the one of the other things that colored kind of my research on this 
as we were getting ready to record um, something I've stumbled across a couple times are his papers at the University of Texas at Austin, which you can go read. And also one of our listeners, Lynn, sent us a note about... It's my mother-in-law. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Lynn. Thanks for writing in. Um, what did she say? Well, now that you named her, I'll, I'll go and just cite the email real quick. Um, your your father-in-law is amazed, Andrew, that you took the book on with a deadline as he read it last fall while on sabbatical, and it took him a whole month to complete. Yeah, um, I'm amazed too. <laughs> Uh, I imagine we will talk about it at Thanksgiving or whatever. Yeah, your father-in-law does think it's one of the very best books ever, though. So we'll talk about that. She pointed us to a recent NPR Fresh Air interview. Terry Gross spoke to the memoirist Mary Carr, who had a series of relationships with Wallace in the early 90s, late 80s. She also... romantic relationships? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, she also uh, like was in rehab and had suicidal ideations. She knew him as someone who had attempted to take his own life and was uh, admitted into McLean and then the Granada House. And he apparently, like before they were even dating, had tattooed her name on himself, like tattooed the name Mary on him, and was kind of a like obsessed with her for a period of time. Cool. Um, and I, I say this with the caveat that what she says in this NPR interview is that, like, unfortunately, as a memoirist, she tries to get people to, like, approve what she's saying about them, but he took his own life and took himself out of that conversation. So recognize that anything I'm saying here is, like, straight from her mouth and is subjective in that way, and she recognizes that. Um, but she noted that some of the stories that come out of this book from that halfway house, uh, she felt were very directly lifted in a way that was inappropriate. Um, she talks about his like anger issues and, you know, obviously substance abuse issues and what that led to him to do in a relationship. Um, she also talked about how he like proposed to her on a regular basis and that she didn't know him to, not propose to anyone he was in a relationship with, which is like just an interesting character fact. So he would just always get, he would always decide to get to the point where he would propose to people. I Yeah. Well, and probably very quickly and probably too quickly and, and probably out of a sense of like, this is, this is what I need, like some mm-hmm. sort of stabilization. Sure. Um, his biographer, DT Max, who wrote a a biography called Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. I think that's the name of the book. Um, every love, every story is a love story, excuse me. Um, he once noted that uh, Infinite Jest was basically like yearning for Mary Carr. Like he just wrote it to impress her, um, which is like a lot to lay on a person. I feel like that it can't possibly be all that it was. No, but there are certainly characters in the book, or at least a few, that resemble her in, in more than explicit ways. Sure. Um, and, and that's something to think about for a guy who was, what, he was born in 62, the book comes out when he's like 34, he starts writing it when he's like in his 29. 20s, yeah, like, 
I th- it's interesting to think about Wallace and where he was in his life when this book came out of his head because I could never have made a thing like this and I am near the age where he was when it came out. The editor in me would have completely disintegrated if I had tried to like <laughs> when I am doing something creative mm-hmm. I can't like I just I am allergic I am utterly incapable of showing it to anybody before I feel like it's some version of like done and like maybe not completely done like here's like how it usually goes for me is like I get to a point where I'm happy with it I will show it to a couple of people Uh uh-huh like usually like you're on that list Susanna's on that list you will give me notes I will inwardly hate those notes yeah and and then I will sit on it for a minute sometimes outwardly hate those notes. sometimes outwardly and then I will sit on it for a bit I will Uh realize that you're probably right and then adjust the thing but like I can't I can't show stuff to anybody before it's at least that like preliminary version of done, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and maybe he thought it was, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but like, I can't, I couldn't, it's so long. It's so rambly. Like it's so all over the place. I just don't, I don't, I, I couldn't write something like this in the first place. I would be self editing too much to like, to even turn in a, a to turn in even the edited version of this manuscript would be beyond sure me, i think uh i want to get into the book but to your to your point about that i did i th- i think either in my sabbatical from reading part of infinite jest or in my ramp up to reading it i don't recall i did read some of his essays and i, I would recommend if somebody has not read this book and they're like thinking about it but are a little scared or a little like i don't know uh, warm up on his voice by going and reading some of his essays. Uh, or I don't know that you should go and like watch the Jason Siegel movie called The End of the Tour without any reference point. I don't know that you should go read the book that that's based on. But I, but... I mean, I can say having read this that there are essays embedded in this that make me think that maybe I would like a book of his essays. You can't. I, I would find can a book of his. Say that. I can say. Okay. Yeah, that having having read this, I would I would find a book of his essays probably more approachable. Yeah, because the, there the are couple, a lot of there are a lot of like mini essays embedded in this thing. And the couple I would recommend, um, there's an essay about being in a small town in Illinois. I'm forgetting the name. A, a small town in Illinois um, during 9/11 and kind of what it was to experience that from an area that of the country that only experiences New York city on like television and Mm -hmm. through fiction. Um, his profile of John McCain in the 2000 primaries called up Simba is a really good article. Uh, as I said earlier, his Roger Federer article is really good. He did get a little bit of heat, uh, especially from his biographer, DT max about embellishing in some of his essay writing Notably in one about a county fair, one about being on a cruise ship, and his trip to the Adult Video Awards in Las Vegas. Uh, Wallace said, you hire a fiction writer to do nonfiction, there's going to be the occasional bit of embellishment. (laughs) And those essays are amazing, 
But of course, like they do kind of that Dave Sedaris like memoir embellishment. I can't. I can't with Dave Sedaris. (laughs) There was a period of my to- of my life where I could with Dave. There, Harris. there, yeah. There was a period of my life, and then that period ended, and it's not anymore. It's gone. Yeah. So I, I, I can't with you, Dave Sedaris. <laughs> it's worth noting when you go back to some of those '90s Wallace essays that some of them are embellished, but it shares a voice with this book that I I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew. Craig. As we get in, let's let's get in. Let's get the hell into this book. It's called Infinite Jest, which is, of course, a reference to... How long it is. Yes. Also, <laughs> to the William, the Billy Shakes play Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Mm-hmm. Poor Yorick. Alas, I knew him well, a fellow of, even, of a Infinite skull. Jest. He's a skull now. He's a skull now. He was a fellow of Infinite I lost Jest. the rest of his bones. <laughs> I just alas, pulled him out of the ground. Alas, alack, poor Yorick. Alas, All I alack. have is your head bone. And I'm sorry. There, there is a reading of the central family of this book that kind of maps to Hamlet. So could you talk to me a little bit about the main character, Hal Incandenza? Incandenza. What is his deal who are his people? What the hell? It's it's just it's hard to find an entry point into this book. And so yeah, I guess the incandenzas are as good a point as any. So Hal is the youngest of three children. Uh-huh. Um, so there there is Orin, the oldest child, who is sort of estranged from the rest of them, uh, used to play tennis, but discovered that he liked and was maybe a little better at football yeah i think we specifically first meet punting. him like jumping out of a plane or something right is that true i don't like for like a football a, game it's a long time ago that i read, read that, that part, part in, in june book. don't worry about it yeah he's a he's a punter for a football team now yes mm-hmm. okay um there's the middle child mario who is hideously deformed and was like was carried to term without his mother realizing that she was pregnant at all. Yeah. Um and then there's the youngest brother Hal Incandenza who is one of the two characters I guess you could you could say is is the protagonist of the book and he is currently um a student a junior I think at the Enfield Tennis Academy. Sure, which um, was Started by or previously owned by started his dad, by, right? Started by his dad, uh, James Incandenza. Junior. Right. Himself. Himself. Um, and so, yeah, so so James Incandenza Jr. and his wife, Avril, started the Enfield Tennis Academy in, uh, like, near Boston, Massachusetts. And they ran it for a while. Um, James Incandenza also became like consumed with making his own films. Like he he was really interested in starting the Tennis Academy until he did it, and then once he had done it, he was ready to move on <laughs> to a new obsession. And that new obsession was making movies and like weird movies, like weird movies. And so, um, like some three or four years before the 
events, like the main events in the book. Sure. He commits suicide by modifying a microwave to work with the door open, which normally they do not do that. Correct. Correct. And he sticks his head in a microwave and and very gruesomely kills himself. And, and Hal walks in on that and finds him. Yeah. Like what and, what else do you want to know about the incandenses cuz it's, well, it's a it's a complicated web that unravels over the course of the book. And it yeah. doesn't and it doesn't like there's also um his uncle right his is involved. His uncle who is what's his name Charles Tavis? Charles, Charles yeah. Charles Tavis who is Avril's either actual half-brother or adoptive half-brother, but either way they definitely are sleeping together. Yeah, so and that's... it's and and Mario may or may not be Charles's son and not James's. And in or not I guess James's. Jim Jim is is how he's more frequently referred to. I guess so that that setup that whole like family dynamic is very similar to Hamlet in that you have you know you have Prince Hamlet right and then you have his dad. Claudius who gets killed by no his dad Hamlet who gets killed by his uncle Claudius who then marries his mother Gertrude Um, nice and something is rotten in the state of Denmark aka the Enfield Tennis Academy (laughs) Um, and meanwhile Hamlet aka Hal uh, is like having some sort of mental breakdown which I think is like sort of how the book opens right He's having some sort of like linguistic. So the the book is like like we alluded to earlier. It's it's a it's a bit of a loop, I guess. So you read the mm-hmm. first part of the book, and and honestly, like the first hundred hundred fifty pages are really yep. like gripping and really draw you in, and then he totally fucking <laughs> loses you as the reader for a while by going into some some possibly racist stuff that I don't even know applies to anything later. Is that, is that the like passage where you first get a lot of the characters who are addicts who are yeah, like doing yeah. nasty stuff on the street and they're speaking in a vernacular. They're that speaking appear- in a really, like a really gross vernacular. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And, and that, and that is of course the thing that I always heard speaking a little bit to the experience of reading this book, the like, Make it through the first 200 pages and you're good. So this is a post on uh, Infinite Summer dated June 17th, 2009, which is titled How to Read Infinite Jest. Okay. And it gives you a lot of a lot of fun notes on things that you should and shouldn't do. Um, <laughs> number three on this list is Persevere to Page 200. There are several popular way stations on the road to abandoning Infinite Jest. The most heavily trafficked by far is the Wardeen section, okay, uh, where the opening pages of IJ are among the best written in the book. Page 37 and many pages thereafter are in a tortured, faux-ebonics-type dialect. Wardeen say her mama ain't treat her right. Wardeen be cry. Potentially offensive if one wants to be offended and generally hard to get through. Hang in there, ignore the regional parlance, and focus on what the characters are doing. Like most things in the book, you will need to know this later. Likewise, for the other rough patches to be found in the first fifth of the novel. So, yeah, this, like, so we've talked not even at all about plot, but we're going to get a little bit into structural stuff is, and this is, this is, what I said to you that made you say, you know, I, I, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way was 
that this book from like the very beginning expects you it like throws you in the deep end. It kind of expects some level of like familiarity with the setting and with the characters. And as you read, you eventually do reach that level of familiarity and like comfort with the characters. But as like as a result, that first fifth of it or so, the first hundred or 200 pages you're just totally like rudderless and and to some extent like you're not aware of what is going on you're not aware of like what's important that you need to hang on to and like remember for later in the book i think if 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 i was not reading this on deadline for a book podcast sure i would have finished it and then looped back around and read like the first hundred or so pages of it again yeah, and it's interesting because for a book that's so aware of the reader, and I, I say that both in terms of its structure, like there are footnotes, there are... Uh, damn it. We'll talk about the footnotes a little bit later. It's There's, aware of its reader. It doesn't care for its reader. That, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like It is aware that there is a reader that is participating in this book experience, but it is demanding a lot of the reader and and not taking care of the reader from the get-go which is uh, interesting for a book that really is about people from what i recall like who are desperately hungry for connection and very bad at it yeah and as i say those words like that sounds like this book (laughs) like (laughs) it really wants to connect with you and it's fundamentally perhaps purposefully bad at it in a couple I think key purpo- ways, I think purposefully, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so let me let me outline the the main plot and hit me. Like, there's there's so much of this. Like, you get what amounts to a big info dump around halfway through. Yeah, about the diversion, like th- where this reality diverged from our reality. Because for a period of time, it just feels like a book taking place now. Yeah, I mean, there are there are illusions like, you know, that it's America, but not America. Okay, you know that there is stuff going on. But then in the middle, through this documentary that's been put together, mostly, I think, by Mario, but partly by uh, Jim and Condenza, the father. Okay. um, You get this alternate history of the United States, which starts in the late 90s or very early 2000s. Sure. Um, with this guy named, uh, what's his first name? James Johnny, Johnny, Johnny Gentle, Johnny Gentle, President Johnny Gentle, yeah, President Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, <laughs> who is a, who's an entertainer who, oh, no. and he, and he's not a member of either like established political party, Oh, but no. he promises that he's going to clean up America and he no. means it like really literally. Andrew, are you aware that we are recording this podcast in the year of our Lord 2016? Yeah, no, I know. It's the it's the year of the dependent adult undergarment over here. <laughs> and it's <laughs> oh, no. So he and and to the surprise of people in the major political parties, like this guy, Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, wins the election. Fuck. And seizes power and like there is no there is no reference to subsequent elections nope they're just done and he has power for at least like the next decade okay and um there are two major events that i think happen in this world that i would love if you could refresh my memory on 
One is something we, that we just made a joke about but didn't explain, which is subsidized time. And two is that big part of the country that's just a giant nuclear waste. Okay, yeah, one leads to the other. So okay, there, hit me. All right, so so Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, <laughs> wants to clean up the United States, uh-huh. and he does this. Um, he he creates this department of the government called the Department of Unspecified Services. I love it, which is of course what you would call a secret department that you didn't want to talk about that much. <laughs> And like they they start depositing, like not just the nation's trash, but like the nation's hazardous waste in the northeast corner of it. Okay, and so like on it, the border of Canada, right? On the yeah, along with the border of Canada. So so Johnny Gentle sweeps into power, and he, without firing a shot, just like the U.S. starts acting like it's also in charge of Canada and Mexico. Okay. And so it that that starts off the the main like political body that you that we're in for the book, which is called um the Organization of North American Nations or Onan or um, Onan. I don't know how you wanna announce how you a, wanna pronounce that. According to the internet, apparently a refer a reference to another term for masturbation. Yeah, onanism, yeah. Totally a reference to masturbation. Completely one hundred percent cool uh so we're we're in this this combination mexico canada united states and in the southeastern bit of canada and the northeastern part of the united states they start basically depositing the entire nation's trash and waste and they're like big like catapults that just like throw it there right yeah and it it becomes clear after a while that like there are massive birth defects there's just there is no end of the stuff that is going wrong in this territory so this becomes a part of the continent called the great concavity oh that's right that's what and it is completely physically walled off Mm, from the rest of the country and so it's it's um it affects Massachusetts, New York, um New Hampshire, I think, and then Maine. And Maine is completely gone. Like oh. to the point where they revised the American flag to have forty nine stars. Oh no. Because Maine is just lost. <laughs> That's a shame. I really like Maine. And uh yeah, no, I really like Maine too, but you wouldn't like this Maine <laughs> oh, no. buddy. Oh god. <laughs> So how does that lead us to subsidized time? So they have this, they have a budget crisis because one, they have like tax revenues from the better part of four states are not coming in anymore. Well, I can't imagine why. (laughs) Uh, People are mad. Uh Uh-huh. And they, and they need all this money to clean up all this stuff. And so, um, Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, and one of his, like the head of the Office of Unspecified Services, uh, Rod, quote unquote, the God Tyne, (laughs) has this idea that they will like sell the name, the names of years to companies that are willing to bid on them. Okay. So we are switching from the Gregorian calendar, which, as far as I can tell, ends at some point in the late 90s or early 2000s. Sure. To years that are named for products. Okay. And so I will read you 
all nine of the years of subsidized time that we are given throughout this book here. Oh, please hit me with the year list. number one is Year of the Whopper. <laughs> Delicious. A uh, year of the Tux medicated pad. Okay. Year of the trial size Dove bar, which for me, like trial size implies that you're not even paying for it. I love it. Like, why not year of the Dove bar? Well, and that here's the thing that's always bugged me is Dove the company that makes like face products, the same company that makes Dove bars. Man, I actually need to look this up. Because there are like, like Dove soap chocolate. Because <laughs> ew. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. I got a. I got a Yahoo answers. We're oh. uh, we're on the case. Oh Yahoo! Um, all right, hit me. So who is this? Who? Because there are people the... who sell like Dove products on the internet. Like it's like a you can sell Tupperware from forty years oh, yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is this uh, comes in. This question comes in from Yahoo Answers user Love Period, <laughs> who asks. <laughs> Is Dove chocolate and Dove soap the same maker? Me and my grandma were watching TV and I asked her this and she didn't know. But are Dove chocolate and Dove soap and stuff made by the same people? Thanks. Uh, this this answer, the best answer comes in from user TypeTiv. Oh, God. Uh, Dove chocolate is made by the Master Foods Company, Mars, who also makes M&Ms and Snickers bars. Name comes from the Dove ice cream bars, and then they came up with a line of chocolate. Dove soap and the Dove beauty bar are part of the Unilever Corporation, which is a huge multinational conglomerate that makes personal care and cleaning products. They have nothing to do with each other, and names in vastly different fields of business, like a bird name in this case, are not that uncommon. It is kind of funny that they both make bars, though. Okay. All right. So that's year three. Hit me with year four. Year four. Year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken. Delicious. Year of the Maytag Quiet Maytag. Wait. Well, fuck. (laughs) Hold on. I'm going to do this again. Year of the Whisper Quiet Maytag Dishmaster. Oh, that's a good one. I like that one. Year number six. Year of the Yushitsu 2007 Mimetic Resolution Cartridge View Motherboard Easy to Install Upgrade for Infernatron slash Interlace TP Systems for Home, Office, or Mobile. Um, and after that year, there were apparently rules instated about like what you could choose to label the year <laughs> if you want it. Okay. Uh, year number seven, year of dairy products from the American heartland. Delicious. Uh, year number eight, the year that most of the book takes place in, is year of the depend adult undergarment. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then number nine, which you get a brief glimpse of, is year of glad, as in as... the garbage bag company. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I have strong uh, memories of the year of the depend adult undergarment. And year of the uh, whisper quiet Maytag dishmaster, <laughs> which no, I like. Year of the Purdue Wonder Chicken is the one that really stuck with me. Now, as you were reading this digitally, did you like check back on this at all as you were reading? Because I remember I was reading the hard copy of this book. I used two bookmarks, one for where I was reading and one for the footnotes i also ended up keeping like a separate piece of paper for that page where they lay out 
the chronology. I did like memorize the abbreviations because okay. then instead okay. of saying like year of the dependent adult undergarment, they'll say like Y D A U. Well, because you just know, right? A uh, year of the America. trial size dub bar becomes like Y T D B. You're the man tux now, medicated dog or whatever. It is. You're the man now, dog. Yes. Um. So, and if I recall correctly, all of these, in the way that this book structure is all over the map, uh, most of these Johnny Gentle famous crooner scenes are like almost written as like little screenplays, right? A little bit, yeah. Like prose. sometimes you get explicitly screenplay stuff, and sometimes you just get snippets through the eyes of characters or through okay. that okay. that big info dump movie in the middle of the of the thing where like newspapers like independent press and broadcast networks are literally dying because they're being snuffed out by corporations. Um, Mm -hmm. And like, there's a lot of stuff about this book that is like eerily prescient. Anything else that, that struck you? Um, I've got one or two that I recall. give Give me your one or two. And then we can talk about like, how we're basically living this reality right yeah now. so i, I just i do want to say that that in addition to getting the year named after you the statue of liberty also holds the product <laughs> that is the that's the year is named for so in the ydau it's just holding a giant granny yeah. diaper i believe that people literally died when a giant whopper like fell on them when uh, they were changing the Statue of Liberty for the year of the whopper. Dark humor in this book. Um, uh, sometimes it's sometimes it's just dark. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, the two things that I recall, two essays were early on in the book. There's a character that is like you mentioned the interlace infernatron, whatever, which is like the the replacement technology for television. It's basically a, like a combination computer television whatever. Yeah. And as I it's recall, like TV, a TV computer Netflix sort of. Yes, so they there's a whole like essay, maybe a third or a or a quarter of the way through the book where they talk about the populace moving from a broadcast model of TV consumption to a like choose whatever you want by mail Netflix model mm-hmm. and then how that burned everyone out on having too many choices so then they just subscribed to these like send me the cartridge in the mail that you think I should watch model and that always struck me as like oddly prescient for 10 years before Netflix happened. yeah yeah I mean like that's prescient we we could go and watch a sports game in uh-huh. guaranteed rates field. <laughs> uh-huh. Like you and I watched a baseball game in like the Citizens Bank, Bank Arena Park. or whatever yep. the fuck, like three <laughs> uh-huh. days ago. It's yep. Like th- there are so many things. There are so many stadiums, baseball diamonds, whatever today that. Either were built to be named after companies in the first place and they replaced previous venues that were named after people or sports teams. Like, or, like Citizens Bank Park replaced Veterans Stadium. Right. Yes. Or or they used to be named after people or sports teams and they were sold to a corporation who then rebranded them. Yep. Like architecture as advertising. Yes. Yeah. Which is kind of gross, uh, nonetheless. It's really um, gross. It's really, other... I really do not like... <laughs> 
do not like it. I do not like it. The I do not other... like going to Xfinity Live <laughs> to get a buzz on before I go to the game at Citizens Bank Park. But all these corporations want you to have such a good time, Andrew. They want and me to have a good time, but they also want me to buy cable. Well, because they want you to associate your good drunk times with cable. That's what it is. I mean, what I'm going to do is I'm going to associate paying nine fifty for a beer with Xfinity Cable. Yeah, that's true. Which is not helpful to anyone. No, no. Um, Least of all other, me. The other thing I remember is the there's a section on video chatting. Ooh, which this is, is pretty good. Which is pretty, pretty good, good. Where so like video calls become like a thing. So video, yeah, video chats become a thing. Which we have now. We have FaceTime, right? We do have FaceTime. But I, imagine a version of FaceTime yeah. where people become really preoccupied with the way that they look to the person on the other end of the line. Correct. And, and I mean, I and like that's real. Like there are like you can find BuzzFeed articles or whatever mm-hmm. about like the best angle to shoot your stupid flabby <laughs> idiot face from to make it look less bad when you're video chatting people. well and you and i have talked about and some of our listeners have asked us if we were if we would ever do like could we let people listen to us record live or watch because you know you and i do a video chat while we record which helps just like keep the vibe going i guess that's right? think i think so i guess like what vibe are we <laughs> I don't know what the vibe is, but we're keeping it going. Um, Keep that vibe going. Keep that vibe on going. And I feel like if that were, if we were letting people watch it, like we would, I would think about what I was wearing. I would think about if I looked dumb. I mean, yeah. I mean, I already think about like, okay, like what's my hair doing? Like, did I shave today? Like, yes. Did I wear the shirt that I'm wearing last time we recorded uh-huh. by accident? Like it's, uh-huh. it's like, <laughs> so you start thinking about that kind of stuff, and then there are companies that rise up that basically start making masks of your in this book of yourself, like idealized masks of yourself that you wear when you're video chatting with other people, so you always look like your best self, and it gets, or or recreations of your room behind you, yeah. That are yeah. like little like screens that you hang behind your chair, and it and it get it gets worse and worse to the point where people basically stop video chatting, <laughs> which is awesome because these like like people have like these masks of themselves like hanging off their walls or it's whatever. Just ghoulish, yeah, it's, yeah, and, and and it becomes like a gauche to <laughs> to actually do it, yeah. yeah. Well, and I've I, I don't know if you've seen this, Andrew. There is an episode of The Jetsons that actually oh, does no. this exact idea in whenever the Jetsons aired, nineteen twenty or whatever. Yeah, way back in nineteen twenty when the Jetsons Mama aired. Mama yeah. Jetson is answering a video call mm-hmm. and she literally goes, Well, let me go put my face on. And first. then she puts like a mask on. She it's pulls like a mask off a shelf. Mask. <laughs> and puts it on her face and then has a video call and it's just i don't know it what i one of the things i remember most fondly about this book and we should get back to the other half of this plot because there's a whole half of this plot we haven't even talked about yep and we're um, one hour in like I this know. podcast may take a bit it might take it might be, it's not gonna be infinite but it's gonna be close um 
I just I have very fond memories of those types where like of these types of sections where Wallace kind of uses a character to start himself down a path and uses the slightly it's not sci-fi but it's this like speculative fiction satire voice to take a concept and like spin it around five times until an answer spits itself out Mm -hmm. and you have like this gut laughing at it and crying at it (laughs) (laughs) we've talked about a little bit about how we've talked about how kind of the first half of this book sets up the style of it um there is another like half of the plot (laughs) uh and we also like will need to come back to like what why the hell hal and his family are important but can you take me into Ennit House, right? Is that what it's called? Take me uh, into the halfway technically house. Technically, it's called the Ennit House Drug and Alcohol Recovery House. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah. So, we get, a, I, I wouldn't say like half, but like we get two fifths of the book up at the Enfield Tennis Academy and then downhill from the Enfield Tennis Academy is uh the Enfield House Drug and, and Alcohol house. Recovery yep. House um which is a sort of halfway house rehab place for drug addicts and there are, there are different individual houses for people who suffer from different you know things but we get most of our um, entry point into this world from this guy, uh, Don Gately. Sure. Who is a very physically large guy who was addicted to like Demerol um, among other like drugs. As I, so as I understand it, as I alluded to earlier, uh, and house is based off of Granada house where, uh, Wallace spent some time and Gately, who, as I recall, is like, a, is, described as not being like built but almost like being poured mm-hmm. into existence mm-hmm. like he's he's like fluid in his giantness um is based on a real guy named Big Craig Oh hey that's why I call you when we're not podcasting Sometimes you do <laughs> I don't Who, like know. Wallace I don't knew know, very well uh in when he was staying there and uh yeah I what I was alluding to earlier, Mary Carr seemed to think that some of these characters that we meet here are perhaps a little too close to home for someone writing a 1200 page work of quote unquote fiction. Like, listen, man, I can like we've, and we've talked about this on the show. I, I worked at a tortilla ship factory, <laughs> second shifts mm-hmm. or third shifts, actually graveyard shifts. Oh, geez. Um, for two summers in college. And yeah, like the the <laughs> you had a big Craig there. You the, just didn't. Yeah, the, I mean the kinds of people that you meet at like like the regulars that you meet, especially if and I like I can't say for sure how Wallace felt, but I'm sure to some extent as like somebody with more education and more sure like, sure like more experience with with upper class people i'm sure he felt like sort of a tourist in this world but like 
Yeah. Okay. When you meet the people who actually live in that world and are regulars in that world, like there is a, there's a sort of fascination there. And it's like, yeah, it's not always the most humanizing thing. Like, yeah, probably you're a jerk. If you are like making fun of the, the guy who's been working there for 20 years, I don't know. Yeah, that's, like it, no, it's, that's, a, that's a good point because I, I I don't know that that Wallace is making fun of anybody, but no, like no. certainly in the same way, if I if I were to write a book about people working in a tortilla ship factory, I would definitely just be lifting characters wholesale from actual people who I worked with at this place. Oh, I am yeah. sure that Wallace has like at best these are probably composite characters. At best, at yeah. best, and, yeah. and and at worst, and I don't even know if worst is the right word, but like, there are many of these characters who probably just are on the page as they were in real life, and he's just inserted them into his story, and there you go. Yeah, well, and and I think some of what I've read about him and his experience there is like, as you said earlier, someone who is accustomed to a different way of life, um, coming out of kind of academia and being very well regarded for your graduate thesis novel yeah, and whatnot, right. like finding yourself in a halfway house for substance abuse and folks who are, might be suicidal or have other um, mental health issues. That's going to be like, what am I doing here? What do I do to get out? And one of, I imagine your coping mechanism is, well, I'm going to make this into fiction. Like I'm going to look around and do the thing that I do everywhere else in the yeah, world. Yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm sure that's part of it. And I'm sure feeling a little bit above it all in like, mm-hmm. a, like at least feeling like an outsider, like you don't like you're just passing through here and this isn't. And I don't know. Like there there are people for whom this halfway house, like in the book, and I'm a hundred percent sure in real life, um, and, and my wife Susanna had worked in drug rehab for two and a half years, and I yeah, absorbed yeah. some stories through that, but like a lot of these people who are in these rehab facilities, like this is the best shelter, uh, like the yeah, best of way of life they're ever gonna find because in the course of their addiction they have alienated everybody else in their lives who would ever offer them something like more than this or better than this yeah and and hmm, because because the drug and 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 wallace says this like explicitly in the book is like the drug addict is a liar the drug addict is a coward like the drug addict is not is not a good person no hmm well, and and that's complement that with the with the archetype of the person who's there and doesn't think they belong there, right? The you know for one for one case the David Foster Wallace probably right of mm-hmm. the like mm-hmm. well I'm better than this I don't des- I don't I'm not supposed to be here. Right. And, and there are certainly characters in this book like uh, um Lens is the one L E N Z is the I think is he I, the cat guy he is the guy who kills first kills rats and then cats and then dogs while also simultaneously getting high just like whenever he feels like he really needs to (laughs) who's sort of flouting the rules and obeying them when he thinks that they fit him sure like i i'm sure there are there are people in these 
in these communities who who don't who don't take the rules especially seriously or who feel like they have a system and so it's fine when they break the rules, you know? Yeah. What do you um about I remember this section of the book or this world of the book rather give me a little bit of an education in um like AA or NA systems, like Alcoholic Anonymous or Narcotic Anonymous systems, and talking about replacing addiction with an addiction to the system, like the 12-step yeah, system, yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way. So this is, I mean, and and we talked earlier about how there are a lot of essays embedded in Infinite Jest, and there is definitely a big essay embedded maybe like a third or two-fifths of the way through sure just about the boston aa or na system and Mm -hmm. aa AA is alcoholics anonymous na is narcotics anonymous Mm -hmm. um there are also specific groups for people who are addicted to pot and like different stuff like the the apparatus like the system tries to get people just to go to to uh like broad groups rather than focusing on any specific drug both because there are like more people more meetings more infrastructure there yeah and um and because they see an addictive personality as a problem just in general and it's like not it's it's very rarely with like some specific drug that you need to kick it's the act of addiction yeah at all um Um, or or the quality of addiction excuse me so yeah, yeah like like people who end up in these in these programs and who are successful at them have hit bottom like they're they have hit the bottom of the barrel their families are gone their jobs are gone like there is not there's nothing left to salvage. Sure. Um, and like you you come in and, and, and when you were in AA or NA, you're given a bunch, you're given all these sort of dictums like, you know, one day at a time and believe in a higher power and all these sort of, and, and these are things that Gately and the book itself, I think that they view them as trite and like sort of almost meaningless, like in and of themselves. But once you, like, if you really want to stay clean and once you've done it for a while, you start to assign your own meaning to like all these trite things that people are telling you to do all the time. Yeah. We, I see that in a little bit of the wire, which I've been recently, recently watching i see that in some of those seasons of breaking bad to like where shows that deal with characters that have substance abuse problems um and what what i remember about this is the like they are a lot of the 12-step system from aa that doesn't require a specific kind of faith but does like encourage you to acknowledge a higher power you as just, you just you, said you God. need to define it literally however you want but gately and a lot of people in the system have trouble doing even that yeah and, and and the quote that i found that wallace has has referenced is and i don't think it's a quote of his i think it's a quote that he probably heard which is um the importance of god is that like it's just to remind you that you're not god that there's like a there's a very literal act of humbling there. So, quote, it's not about whether or not you believe, asshole. It's about getting down <laughs> and asking, mm-hmm. which is, I think, if you're dealing, I don't know, I, what it sounds like coming out of the system is that like 
when you think you're in control and you're not, that's the problem. So acknowledge that maybe you aren't because, you know, imagine and acknowledge that there's something else that might be in control and that might be a way to help. Um, so let's let's talk about Gately. Let's talk about Ant House. I think. Well, like, what we got- what do you want to talk about in particular about Gately? Because we will we can talk about him, and then we'll talk about the threads that tie Hal's and like the Incandenza story and Gately's together. Which That's kind of what I want to hit will on. Kind of like yeah. lead us into the. I don't know, like it's to, to the end game, such as sure. it is the re, Eschaton. Re yeah. this podcast about this book. So, like, why? Why does Gately show up in this book both... Let's start literally. Like, there's a character from the Incandenzas that... The Incandenzas sphere that connects him, right? Um, Do you want to talk... Is this about Joel? Do you want to talk about Joel? Yeah, let's talk about Joel. Uh, so, Joel Van Dyne... Yeah. ...is a impossibly beautiful woman. Like, capital letters, right? Yeah, well, Almost. what's what's the actual like abbreviation? prettiest girl of all time? Prettiest she's girl the, of all. She's the pea goat. The pea goat. Uh, Joel Joel Van Dyne, the pea goat, is uh, sh- she meets Oren as he is making this transition from tennis, which his dad played and like founded a fucking academy around, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to football, which he is just like better at and like happier at to the extent that anybody anywhere in this book is happy. And when we talk, we're going to talk about a little bit later about the, like the politics of this book. And I've got like, I've got an observation to drop on you. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So look, hit me with the good stuff. Um, So Joel and Oren, who is the oldest and condensed kid, they date and even get to the point where they are affianced. Hmm. Um, but, uh, Joel also kind of falls in with James Incandenza, the father who is making these movies and she starts to become like a fixture in his movies, in his filmmaking, in his filmmaking. And it gets to the point where Oren breaks it off with her because, and this is what he says, because he feels like there, there must be something sexual going on. We don't know this to be true. We don't know this to be true, and and later on, so man, there's there's just so there's, there's a lot so going on much with every character. On. So when we meet Joel, we dis- we discover she is also this radio personality named Madame Psychosis. Yep, she wears a veil over her face at all times. She's some part of some society. She's part of, of some almost AAS group of disfigured people who choose to cover their faces to cover their faces and like as we're as we're told the statement of doing that instead of pretending like you are normal quote-unquote normal when you're actually disfigured is a whole like thing in and of itself that gets like stigmatized and whatever um in in an attempt to remove stigma it becomes it becomes its own stigma Yeah, yeah yeah um so there's there's some there's a gray area in the book of whether or not she's actually disfigured. There is what I choose to believe, and and this is this is what she tells Don, is that she is so 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 like in so that you have a choice of two things in this book, like why she wears the veil. Thing one is, 
um, like while Oren is at their house during Thanksgiving, her father, her personal daddy, mm-hmm. who has infantilized her to distract himself from how attracted he is to her, uh-huh. um, f- reveals that he is attracted to her. Oh, God. Um, her mother, his wife, gets super upset about this. Sure. And he is like a sort of chemist who experiments with a lot of acids. So she runs in the basement. They all follow her. She tries to throw, like Joel's mother tries to throw a vial of acid at the father who ducks. Oren also ducks. It hits her in the face and disfigures her. So maybe That's this is, version. Maybe this is why she wears the veil. The other reason is that she is so beautiful that it is a disfigurement that like people That's, have trouble yeah. approaching her and talking to her because that's how beautiful she is. And like and, certainly throughout the book that is how her body is described. Yeah, and and I think also you don't get that uh acid face story until pretty late. Until super in the late. Book. No, you you get the version where it, she is so beautiful that it's considered a disfigurement quite For a most bit of the book. quite a yeah. bit before you get the acid in the face story so, and you're and yeah, you're so, hearing the acid in the face story through one of joelle's friends and how close can they possibly be you know yeah so at that point the book has already built up this case for it to be that kind of beautiful as disfigurement yeah and so yeah, the, so is, yeah, yeah so the link is a um, going back to why we'd started this conversation in the first place, and this mirrors the structure of the book. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, Joel dates Oren, is in some of James's films. Uh, Oren leaves her. And again, this is a thing where you can believe that he leaves her because she's disfigured or because he thinks that she was involved with his with his father dad. yeah and okay. here's here's a point in favor of her actually being disfigured is that you get like within the last 20 30 pages of the book that Oren did not actually believe that she was involved with okay dad. okay okay so the, yeah there's just a lot going on what are you gonna do <laughs> so she's she's in and now there's a particular film that she's in right we're gonna talk that about that important. so i'm gonna link these two things together joelle while she is with Oren, becomes a drug addict. It starts with cocaine. I think it moves on to to different stuff. But she mm-hmm. tries to basically, she intentionally tries to OD and kill herself. Okay. And she ends up in Enfield House, which is how she and uh, Gailey, yeah. how she and Gailey know each other. Okay. So that is one of the main threads, like linking this stuff together. And that leads us to the if anything in this book <laughs> is an overarching plot, here it is. Is that so? James and Condensa made movies. Yes. Home movies. Home movies. Like in that show, like in the Cartoon Network original series, Home Movies. Yes. Um, he. God, I love that show. Is, oh, man, it's such a good show. <laughs> But I can, like, stop watching it, which is not a thing that people who watch this home movie can do anymore. Correct. Tell me about that. <laughs> so, I I don't know. Is, is it his last work? Is it supposed to be James Incandenza's very last work ever? I have not reread the footnote, which is one of my favorite footnotes, which is just a fictional filmography 
for James and Condensed Jr., <laughs> um, which is like, as I recall, there are like jokes in the filmography that are like really deep cut, like just the phrasing of what like subtitles and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think it's supposed to be, if not his last, then one of his very last works is a collaboration with her. And the film is called Infinite Jest. Sure. Either the fifth or sixth film of that name because he tried to do it. A, he tried a to make it a couple before. of times. It was, it's ostensibly, according to Joel, I think according to Joel, a, a, um, it's either according to Joel or according to James Incandenza's ghost. Who we meet later in the we book. We meet later in the book, and there's a lot of evidence for this ghost actually existing. Yep, which is great. Which is great. I remember um, I remember that realization that that ghost had been there the whole time man. and I like pooped my pants. It was so cool. Did you really did you do I was that kind because of excited it was about it because you were in the middle of like a drug binge? I don't well maybe both. I don't remember, God. but it was kind of cool. You just shoving peanut M&Ms into your face. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so, okay. So he makes this film right, so what is he it? He makes this film. All right. Man, so we go back to the incandenses. The first, the first thing that you get in the book is actually chronologically after the rest of the stuff that you get in the book. And Not so, confusing at all. So this is happening in the year of Glad, the ninth year. It's people from the Enfield Tennis Academy talking, like trying to talk to Hal, uh huh, in Condensa, the youngest son. Yep, and they're trying to figure out like. You were such a good student. You were such a good tennis player, but you're like not anymore. Like what's happening? And he tries to open his mouth to talk to him and they are literally horrified by whatever (laughs) sounds it is that he is making. Like he is so unable to communicate Uh with him in any way whatsoever. Yes. Um, And, and so we, and, and then like right off the bat, you get this flashback to Hal's youth where he approaches, Oren, Anna, Avril, who is called the Moms. Was their, the Moms. You know, their mother. Yep. Um, and he is holding this piece of mold that like grows on other mold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he I is shouting something that they eventually interpret as I ate this. I ate this. Which if you're a parent of a young child, like those are the three words that you <laughs> most fear. Oh. You're right. Oh no. <laughs> I I don't know why that jives with the same part of my brain that like in kindergarten heard uh, a little bit of paste goes a long way. Like there's the, 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 those were not nutrition facts. Those are no. <laughs> There was a great paste shortage in my kindergarten. There wasn't a paste shortage, but I did turn I turned in a project that involved glue. <laughs> and I like wet. I glued <laughs> that shit was never coming apart. Like I glued the hell out of it. Any of those projects? And I that... got I got back a like a note oh, that no. just said a dot of glue with the word dot <laughs> underlined. <laughs> Any anything that involved construction paper and glue always had too much glue. 
Like you could just see it sopping through. It's rough because like sometimes you'd have glitter involved in those stuffs too. And like the the strategy for applying glitter was just to put down lines of glue in the pattern that you wanted the glitter to have and then throw glitter on it. Just Jackson Pollock all over that shit. (laughs) (laughs) So he ate the mold. He said, I ate this. And so he. Throughout most of his adolescence and his young adulthood, he seems mostly fine. He can communicate well, but he cannot like display emotion. Yeah, he's a little bit broken. He's broken in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. And his father feels like like and and he his, like James Incandenda's Incandenza does not have an easy time interacting with any of his kids, with the exception of Mario, who, I mean, you can maybe talk a little bit more about the trope that Mario is in the Shakespearean tradition in a little bit. Yeah, sure. We'll come back to, I do love Mario. I, I do. It does make my heart hurt. Yeah, that's the trope. Um, yeah. All right. Can talk, talk about Hal and his dad. And Hal's dad wants to communicate with him just like desperately. Sure. And that's the creative impetus behind Infinite Jest. So, like, let me make a movie that will be so impactful it will reach my mold, heart, mold laden son. I mean, they don't mention the mold thing except at the beginning <laughs> of the But that's book. the implication. But yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, so he, so James and Condenza, with the help of Joel, Joel, mm-hmm. who makes him swear to be sober which is not a thing that he's good at like most of the characters in this book are addicted to something i think that's purposeful usually yes. drugs and i again like that's that's part of the political bombshell that i have to drop on you at the end of the episode okay okay um so he makes this movie called infinite jest which is most of the other characters call it either the entertainment or the sama's dot yes which is a term as i recall borrowed from like the soviet block era yes where it was Which, like i mean keep in mind in the time this book was published like had just ended had just ended and which is like underground publication that would then be disseminated almost and we're going to get into this almost like the videotape from the ring like this is <laughs> like right like here is a dangerous well, then a weird little girl would come and she would like <laughs> to kill you uh-huh and if you don't pass it on then you die also yes um but yeah the the the, the entertainment or the samistat yes and what like what is and so the the effect of the entertainment on anybody who watches it is they are so entertained by it they are so enthralled by it that they completely lose their willpower to do anything other than watch the entertainment. So like Pokemon Go. It's like Pokemon Go. Like that's all people Speaking of, do now. that's been our podcast. I have to go catch this Zubat. <laughs> like I need to go walk outside and level up my Squirtle. See you later. I am Pokemon going away. A piece. A piece. Um so, yeah. so you get so you get these scenes throughout this book of people viewing the entertainment and what often happens 
is that they will like miss an appointment or they will just be generally absent from life. People will go to check on them. People will go to check on the person who was sent to check on them. And you get this outward ripple of people who are just enthralled and completely lobotomized by this entertainment. To Do the we point, ever get a description of what it is? Very vaguely. Sure. Um, like Joelle's, which is, which is Joelle's yeah. attractiveness is part of it. But like okay. even she okay. like she was in it and she doesn't know what it is about it that makes that makes people so enthralled. Yeah, of course. Um but so so going back to some of the political stuff we talked about earlier, like the United States has absorbed Canada and Mexico. Mexico is mentioned a few times, not super important in the scheme of this book. But Canada, specifically people in Quebec, are not the thrilled. Quebecois. The Quebecois are not thrilled about having been absorbed into the United States. And if you know anything about stereotypical Quebecois... <laughs> You know that they are like the Texas of Canada in so far as yes. they frequently entertain <laughs> secession. <laughs> Just like and and it's funny. That's a that's a funny thing to think about in America where like every 4 years there is a group of people in America who like maybe we should just go to maybe Canada. we're gonna move to Canada and it's people on both sides of the Canada. political aisle which oh, is funny because sides. Canada is way more hospitable to people on the left side of the aisle than it is on the right side <laughs> very much so and yet there's a city slash minor province area in Canada that's like guys we gotta get out it's of here it's just a province like what just it's not the country city, it's not the minor province area of Quebec it's a it's a Canadian well, Quebec's province. A city, though. Quebec is Quebec is a city. Yeah, but it's also a province. Well, that's what that's just confusing. Why would you do that? Why would you call a city New York City and then put it in the in the state of New York? Yeah, but at least Idiot. they put the that's the police they put the word city next it's to it. It's not Quebec to help City. Me. I don't Please think it's look up city. Quebec like the city that you think you're thinking of and make sure that we're not being complete idiots. I'm <laughs> because on like it. listen among the corrections that we get on Twitter after episodes, most of them are Canadian. Many of them are Canadian because as okay. boorish Americans, we don't feel like we need to know anything about our northern neighbors because we just kind of take them for granted, which okay, Canada, so, I'm truly sorry. But so here's what's confusing. Also, I'm not like we're not wrong. What I'm reading here, <laughs> according to the Wikipedia, is that Quebec or Quebec is Canada's largest province. Mm -hmm. Its capital is Quebec. Quebec. Also known as, to your point, the city of Quebec, Quebec City, Quebec City. Um, you should just try the, all the pronunciations and then we'll fix it in post. Um, and the, But <laughs> just to make things me. more complicated, the largest city in Quebec, Quebec the province is Montreal. <laughs> so, which as I understand is like totally cool with everything, but I don't like, I don't know. All, all I know about Canada is that Toronto is like the New York city of Canada. Hey, Toronto's pretty cool city. I don't know. I haven't been there. I saw the Lion King there once. Like the play, like the musical. Yeah. Simba said, a why did you go great. all the way to Canada when you could have just gone to New York? 
It was high school. They sponsored a trip to Toronto. We played music in a museum. Uh, and did you, ha- did you have to get your passport? Uh, yeah, I, uh, yes. I didn't get my passport. When did you get your passport? Was it for this specifically? Well, mm, I maybe I didn't get my passport. Maybe I just had to give them like an ID because I remember getting a passport. Because this, this was like pre 9-11, right? Uh, no, it would have been post. Jeez, it was dang. junior or senior year of high school. Okay. So I feel like they put all of our IDs and social security cards in Ziploc, social security cards in Ziploc baggies and handed them to a Canadian border officer and like, while we were and on like, a giant what did coach they, bus. Did they just like look at them and, and be like, eh? Well, eh? they were like, these are a bunch of high these school kids. These are fine, kids. right? These are high school kids with trumpets and French horns. Like, we're fine. High school kids have very like expandable insides, and I'm just saying, if you're gonna Ew. come up and you're gonna ingest a bunch of Ziploc bags full of <laughs> prescription drugs, no, and then drive them back down through the border that we obtained with free Canadian health. Yes, that is what you would do. When did you get your passport? When I was 25 years old, <laughs> and I was I was going to Japan to visit my friend Kirsten. Now you did was, go to Japan. I did I go to Japan, that. and and she is a sometime listener of the show. So hello if you're listening to this. Um, and yeah, she was she was part of the Jet program, which is like an English like just teaching English over in Japan. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I went to go visit her. I ended up climbing Mount Fuji. Oh, I we like. I lost Talked like on eight the and a half pounds. <laughs> that was crazy. In 10 days. That's awesome. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, found, I found them again later. Okay. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I I lost like 10 or 15 pounds when I moved into the city of Philadelphia. Don't worry. They were waiting for they were, me. They were around. <laughs> I found Just them. Just lurking around every corner. Most of them were in pizza places. <laughs> Go figure. Uh. Andrew, we brought up Canada for a reason as something to do with the entertainment and the political arc of this story. Why? So there's what? another thread where there okay. are these Quebecois separatists who okay. are trying to find the entertainment, like a master tape of the entertainment, so they sure. can distribute it widely in the former U.S. And oh, okay. in so doing, weaken the U.S. enough to... like regain like gain or regain independence from the u.s oh like like make the u.s bad enough that like canada can be a thing again or they could maybe or just like just like weaken the u.s and and johnny gentle famous crooner his administration enough to be able to break away okay that okay that i mean that seems like a thing that would happen if somebody in a like cia like Canada intelligence agencies uh, figured out that that thing exists and could be weaponized. Mm-hmm. So to the the to the extent that there is an overarching narrative, you've got the Quebecois separatists who are trying to find the entertainment, the master tape of the entertainment, and you've got Rod the God Tyne, who is it's it's strongly implied is probably actually the power behind the behind yeah, the throne. Like a- a chief of staff for Johnny Gentle, famous group. Right. Yeah. Um, and the U.S. is trying to either locate sort of an antidote video or oh. keep the Quebecois people from getting the video in the first place. And that is all happening sort of in the background. Very much in the, the background. To the day-to-day the struggles of, of Hal and Gately. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. And they get wrapped up in it somehow? Sort of. Man, okay, so this is oblique. Um, So the book ends with both Hal and Gately in some in a sort of in-between state. Okay. So Hal, for various reasons, is going through marijuana withdrawal and is slowly losing his power to... Like, he has not yet lost his power to communicate with people, as we see in the beginning of the book, but he is displaying emotions involuntarily that other people find strange. Okay. Um, and Gately is, as a result of a skirmish with some Canadian people who uh, who have it in for actually for very good reason have it in for one of the one of the Enfield House um, inhabitants. <laughs> he gets okay. it, he gets in a scuffle with some Canadian people, ends up getting shot in the shoulder, and is recuperating in a nearby hospital. And is that where the ghost shows up? That is where the ghost of James, the wraith of James Incandenza shows up. Okay. But um, the like chronologically, I guess the end of the book is Gately and Hal and Joel and another kid from the Academy digging up James Incandenza's grave to like, look for either the master copy of the entertainment or the antidote to the entertainment. And there, and it is, and it is strongly implied that Oren has gotten there already and that he has been sending copies of the entertainment to people who didn't like his father or who his father didn't like because he has been for his entire life, like so desperate for his father's approval while his father's been more focused on how right and he's never like he's never gotten it um so this is this is this is maybe not something that you'll pick up from reading the book this is not something i picked <laughs> up from reading the book but in reading about like i decided i knew that i wanted to read like the first part of the book again so i just i looked up like give me the fucking chronological timeline for infinite <laughs> jess and there are blog posts that like that like lay it out. So like here is what happens chronologically because the book there is nothing in this world that I have ever read that has been more frustrating than a <laughs> 980 page book that ends in the middle of the story. Yeah. Okay. It was so hard to read this. So hard to read this on deadline. And I knew, I knew that to really appreciate it, I would have to go back and read the first part of it again. And I just did not. I I mean, like I finished this like two and a half hours prior to recording. I literally could not go back. Oh no. Oh no. And I don't, I don't think I went back and, and read it either. Like I think, and I've over the years, every couple months, when someone mentions that they're reading Infinite Jest, I will go and read three articles about it, but not actually approach the book again. No, because I'm scared of it. It's like sitting next to me right now on my desk. I don't oh, even want to man, touch I'm it. Like tired even talking about it. Like no. that's so. That's most of the plot stuff, right? Yeah. Well, I just want to share this quote from please do, David Foster please Wallace. Please do himself. share this quote, and then maybe we can talk about the experience of like re- yeah. actually reading the book. 
Yeah, because we haven't even... <sighs> yeah, okay, real quick. You're talking about the ending and how the ending of the book from a like reader experience point of view is literally the middle of the story um, and what the heck happens at the end. Foster Wallace said, uh, it does resolve, but it resolves outside of the right frame of the picture. You can get a pretty good idea, I think, of what happens. Like, he is deliberately taken the explicit ending of this plot that he's been uninterested in actually spelling out for you the entire time away from the book. Like, he's taken it out of the book. And in that way that we were talking about, oh my god, an hour ago, it, <laughs> it like... The book is knows that you're there and knows that you've been there for 1,200 pages, but it like doesn't know how to help you, it's, or, I, or I it's don't deliberately even, it doesn't, not it doesn't, helping it's you. It's not that it doesn't know how to help you. It's just that it's not interested in helping you. Like It knows that all the information is there for people who are smart enough to look for it or to take notes on it or whatever. Sure. But it is not interested in meeting you halfway, like literally at all. Well, and I, and I wonder too. Like, let's get into the to your experience reading it. Like, I think there's part of this book. There's certainly part of this book that l- sprang from the head of a man steeped in a, whole, a lot of philosophical study and a lot of study of literature. Like his two of his bigger influences are like Thomas Pynchon and Don DeLillo. And he's, like, very aware of what fiction can and can't do. And he's deliberately created this monster thing that is, like, fucking with the boundaries of what a story can accomplish. And not, not to say that it does accomplish the thing he wants to accomplish at every beat or every chapter, but I, I think that's what he's trying to do, and that's up to you, the reader, to decide if you're, like, game to deal with that. <laughs> so you texted me earlier today, or maybe you put it in our Slack, I don't remember, that I you were was, just like, I think I texted it to you, and then I posted an expanded <laughs> version needed, in the Slack. Like, the digital equivalent of just taking off your shirt and running down the street screaming. Of like, I'm very frustrated with this thing. I think I like it, and that makes me even more frustrated. Is basically what I've gotten from you. It's like, I don't, I don't, I seriously do not dislike this book. I really that's do a, not. It, yeah, that's a cool but statement. It dislikes me. <laughs> the book is so like the structure of the book where it is always hopping around between different viewpoints it's taking these incredibly long digressions to tell you about super complicated stuff that may or may not ever like literally ever in the rest of the book ever come up again Uh and it is doing this from the very beginning to the very very end like there is i texted you like like i was 20 pages out and i'm getting the family history of some enfield tennis kid who i'm not even sure that i had ever met before (laughs) It's well, it's and so yeah, that's just that's just how it is. And it's if you stop reading this book in the middle of it because it's just it's not meeting you, the reader, like it's not even trying to meet you halfway, it's not trying to meet you at all. It just is what it is, 
and you need to come to where it is or you need to quit. And I have like if I was not reading this for a podcast, I would absolutely have stopped reading it like sure. 10 percent of the way in. And I cannot like even if people are trying to read it to keep up or like for a personal like white whale project or whatever, if they stop reading, I can't I can't blame them at all because there are rewards to reading this book like it is worth reading but jesus christ it is hard to read it is hard to read like no book i've read and like ever has been and like for the show or for anything yeah and that's what's been fascinating to me like and be and reliving it with you now it's like this book for better or for worse is an is an act of reading that is analogous to little things I can think, like few things I can think of in in other media where it's like, can you handle or can you endure this experience? Can you go off and try this thing and like make it through? Like the things that spring to mind are like acts of physical strength and prowess. <laughs> like, can you run a marathon? Can you do an iron mudder? Like, this is the intellectual equivalent. This is of the that. book version of American Ninja Warrior that it I just is. got through. <laughs> it is. Um, and one of our listeners wrote in. This is Maria, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago, and she she like was like, "Oh my god, Andrew! Like, good job. You're gonna do this. It's gonna be great." And she had bounced off it a couple of times, and she said that ultimately the humanity of Hal and Gately got her through the thing. They started becoming more central to her reading and their desires to become better human beings, especially Gately, became compelling. She also said she let go of understanding everything and that that would be okay in a book. Yeah, that's and it's that's, like that's that is great. Like that is what a what a weird thing to have to decide about a book. Yeah, exactly. Is like, I'm going to read this. And I'm not going to get it. Like, that's, that is a very, if we talk a lot about, I think folks in the past couple of years have talked a lot more about what you're willing to spend time on and this awareness that time is a very precious resource. And I think that cuts two ways on this book. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. And then I want to get to your political thing that you've brought a couple of times. But for this book, there is, on one hand, it is like, if you bounce off this book, that's totally cool because life is finite and how dare you waste your time with a thing that you can't get behind. On the other hand, this book has stuff in it that is cool and potentially revelatory or at least very curious and speaks to your daily life if you are willing to devote the time to it but it won't get there unless you do that time. Yeah. I just I don't know of a thing in anywhere else that is that troublesome yeah. or demanding. No, same. Um hit me with hit me with your political well, thing. So we'll let, talk I, about that. I the actually wanted to too. talk about you and Mario before we talk about my oh, sure. thing because I So Mario as we said before is the very physically and mentally like damaged middle son in the Incandenza family. And let me just like, there's a passage like two thirds away through the book. That is just, that is from Mario's perspective. And he's thinking about how, 
Okay. And it yeah. just, it is completely heartbreaking and emotionally present in a way that the book is not always. Sure. Sure. Uh, so this is, this is Mario thinking. He can't tell if Hal is sad. He's having a harder and harder time reading Hal's states of mind or whether he's in good spirits. This worries him. He used to be able to sort of proverbially, preverbally know in his stomach generally where Hal was and what he was doing, even if Hal was far away and playing or if Mario was away and now he can't anymore. Feel it. This worries him and feels like when you've lost something important in a dream and you can't even remember what it was, but it's important. Mario loves Hal so much it makes his heart beat hard. He doesn't have to wonder if the difference now is him or his brother because Mario never changes. And like that, you can probably guess. I love which, Mario so You can much. probably guess oh which God. sentence in that that I highlighted. But oh God, I love Mario. Mario so much loves that... Hal so much it makes his heart beat hard. And that there's a sentence. Uh... There's a, like a sentence that Wallace had told his biographer a number of times that he wanted to write fiction that made, what is it, the head, oh God, I'm going to, uh, makes heads throb heart-like, which is almost like Greek in the in the way the, sent, the phrase structure is. Mm. It's, it's very Homeric. But yeah, like I listen to any passage about Mario and it just pulls at my heartstrings. And he, he is, as I was saying to you the other day, he's this like, he's not a truth-telling Shakespearean fool in the classic sense, though there's a reason that this type of character can so, be in I mean, book. you do get the, the feeling that by being undervalued and by being an observer mm-hmm. in so many people's lives that he does see things that other people do not see. He, he, he yeah, he is the observer off to the side and as i phrased it like he is the improbably damaged heartfelt person (laughs) like his his medical uh dossier is like is purposefully comically wrong and like long and gross like the number of things that he deals with and that are medically wrong with him um or that are obstacles to him are meant to overwhelm you with like how specific they are and how much they are. And I just, I think there's a passage maybe two thirds of the way in the book where he's like in a Metro stop or in a subway station or something, just like trying to shake hands with people. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. It's it's closer to the I, end than you remember. I, and, I, but. and I don't remember why he's doing it, but it, it is this like, heartbreaking portrait of the desire for human connection that underpins this entire book. And Mario, to like, me, like anyway. it's when we say he's deformed, that doesn't even, that doesn't quite cover it. Like his, his feet are literally rectangles. His skin is reptilian. You can, when Hal helps him get dressed, you can, he, you can feel his heart beating like through his, Skin. Yeah, he has like macrocephaly, like his head is large. He has a crutch that like has to be under his chest cavity. Yeah, to keep him upright. yeah, he has like it's basically this third leg that keeps him from falling over. Um, other characters often have trouble even understanding the stuff that he's saying when he does speak. He is often revealing like holes in his vocabulary or in his understanding of things. Even though his yeah. family tries very purpose- 
purposefully not to like treat him in a patronizing way. And this is, yeah. this is including both Hal and the moms, even though Oren yeah. did torment him in some very disgust. I, I think we're generally meant to not like Oren, which I, I, yeah, I think that's, with. that's certainly accurate. Um, yeah. I, 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 I like instantly have an open wound on me when I am thinking of Mario and Condensa. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think and, that's and, that's as intended, you know. And I think there are that is for me, as I recall, part of what is very worth it in this book. Wallace doesn't get like nakedly emotionally manipulative the way that sometimes works of fiction can get. True. But Mario is when he does. And it's made all the more affecting by how intentionally not affecting the rest of the book is. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Um, do you want to talk about what's your political th- bomb that you want well, to drop? Okay, so me? so we're so most of the political stuff that you absorb through this book, the the whole like what happened to the U.S. and Canada and Mexico and whatever, which feels like like satire. It is satire ish, but it's very much happening in the background. Yeah, and if you're want to talk, and we talked a little bit about how the book like applies to our present day situation situations, um. If you want to talk about why this dystopia in the book has come to be, I think all you need to do is like be in the characters' heads. Every single character who we meet in this book, and even the ones who we meet in passing, the ones who we just pass by on the street, every single character in this book is so self-absorbed. Hmm. And like often this will be like self-absorption in a real struggle against drug addiction or against whatever. Hmm. Nobody in this character in, in, in this book, like no character in this book is thinking politically, like what can we do to change this obviously horrible situation? Like what, huh? Okay. What, what can we change? What can I as an individual do? Everybody in this book is, trying to muddle their way through their own personal thing. And to the extent that they think about the political situation at all, it is background noise in their lives. And I like, we try not to get like too political on the show. I don't think, but I don't think it's hard to draw a line between sort of a disaffected, disengaged public and something like a Trump presidency where this where this person can, like Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, break so many norms and defy so much conventional wisdom and yet still be doing as well as he's doing. Like there's there's a certain like nihilism, I guess, like a collective nihilism. Yeah. And like disaffectedness. Well, in the, I, in yes. the mm-hmm. ostensible electorate in Infinite Jest that I see in our electorate in the real world. And like, damn, Daniel. <laughs> Back at it again with the white supremacy. Oh. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> I didn't plan that, but it felt no. right at the moment. Yeah, well, and this book's 
20 years old now, right? Like, that's crazy to think yeah, of. Yeah. Um, surprising to think of. And, and I did pull a quote from Wallace's essay, E Unibus Plurum, which is an essay on the effect of television on America, which I think is relevant here. Um, because I think what you've been talking about is this kind of like this disconnectedness and personal self-absorption that comes from various forms of addiction. Well, and, and it's also absor- it's reflected in like the the essay about video chatting earlier that people just like were so vain and idiotic that they. Uh. Well, and there's that there's that scene, too, where. Everyone goes and like watches them clean a fountain, right, in the city square because they're so hungry for a communal public event. Because meanwhile, they've all been like doing their video chats and doing their Netflix, and like everything is personal and isolated. Mm-hmm. So they are like hungry for this municipal activity, yeah, and it's very internet-y. Yeah, it is. Insofar um, as like water cooler stuff has has in oh, in large sure, part sure. like dried up in the in the internet slash Twitter era because things are so like fragmented and personalized. Well, yeah, and, and I think like the big underpinning of the satire element or at least the commentary element of this book is that like Wallace is not espousing this as good behavior, like you just said, like he's saying, but this is like this is the way things are right now, mm-hmm, guys. Mm-hmm. Um As he said in his essay, I want to convince you that irony, poker-faced silence, and fear of ridicule are distinctive of those features of contemporary U.S. culture uh, that enjoy any significant relation to the television whose weird pretty hand has my generation by the throat. (laughs) I'm going to argue that irony and ridicule are entertaining and effective, and that at the same time, they are agents of a great despair and stasis in U.S. culture— and that for aspiring fictionists, they pose terrifically vexing problems. I think it's not uh, unimportant that at least one character in this book is addicted to MASH, the television show. The, yeah, I... the television series MASH. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like... you think about the extent, it's it's almost a sort of state of arrested development or even... Yep. Like our most original, like if if you're going to talk about the the flavor of the summer, you're going to talk about Stranger Things, and oh, that sure. show is as like I love that show. I think it does so many things so well. And if you want to hear me talk more about it, you'd listen to my other podcast, Appointment Television, ATVPodcast.com. Never heard of it. Um, but it is it is every inch like a pastiche and yeah. a reference, and. It, to, to stuff that came before and it's a really good reference insofar as you usually can't tell that it's trying to reference a thing that's how endemic to the thing it is but it's so like it's so you can't it's just it's you can't evaluate that show critically without thinking about like 70s 80s horror sci-fi movies like you just you just can't yeah. sure Oh, uh, and and the types of characters and the pastiche of the of the way it's shot and the aesthetic overall, yeah, yeah. And it's just it's gotten so commercially difficult to do anything truly new that people often sure. aren't doing. I'm not saying it's not happening because it is happening, but 
Well, we're at a point it's now rough, where, where you know? so much back media, so much like TV history or or book history or, or anything is so readily accessible that anything new is in constant conversation with the past in a way that it wasn't before. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, we're probably winding down our discussion, Andrew. I, so I hope I, so, because it's been two I hours. I hope so. <laughs> Can we just touch on definitely the footnotes the book has two to three hundred pages of footnotes and i don't know how it plays out in the digital version but as i said earlier i had two separate bookmarks and from what i understand wallace is like (laughs) he was quoted as saying that like he was trying to create a percept like you know portray a perception of reality that was jumbled and non-linear and he could yeah, have done he that. Did with, that. Well, he could have done it with the basic sentence structure, but that would have been unreadable. So instead, he still he did like, it, though. I know. He said he broke up the plot and had footnotes. Like, what is that? What's happening with those? What was that like for you as a reader? It was. It was pretty frustrating. Like to be entirely honest. <laughs> Sure. I mean, it, so when you're reading the digital version, I read this mostly on a Kindle, not like a Kindle app, an actual Kindle. And so they have little footnotes. You tap the footnote and it shows you like, you know, it shows you the footnote. And often in this book, there are footnotes that are like 10, 15 pages long. Maybe sometimes there more are than whole, that. there's a whole story that is in one footnote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then like, and then other times it's, it's, it's giving you information that is super not necessary to your understanding of the book. So I, I took a few, I, uh, t- took with my phone, a few pictures of my Kindle for situations where I really wanted to juxtapose <laughs> the footnote with the text. Okay. But, um, so this is talking about the kitchen at the Enfield Tennis Academy. Um, there's a sign in a kitchen staffer's crude black block caps taped to the dispenser's facade that says milk is filling semicolon drink what you take. The sign used to say milk is filling comma drink what you take until the comma was semicolonized by the insertion of a blue dot by a fairly obvious person to you, the reader, not fairly obvious <laughs> to the students of Enfield Tennis Academy. You find out through a footnote. Footnote number 260, incidentally, Mrs. Incandenza always grades everything in blue ink. And that's the footnote uh, of that section. Okay. Okay. That's a fair critique of the granularity of the footnote. There is one that I, I, I texted you about. You did send, yeah. And so, so all these footnotes heretofore have been incredibly detailed and omniscient, I think, mostly. But... This this one character refers to something called the coatic, whoa, coatlicue complex. Sure. And this is footnote number two hundred sixteen. You tap the two sixteen. The footnote is it just says no clue. <laughs> so that that gets to what gets I to how find funny. This book can be because oh we have it's something God. we haven't talked about a lot, but like it's. It's a funny ass such a good he's such a good writer. It's like it's crazy how much of this like I am just so in envy of because I could never write. I could never write it. And And like I'm I'm super frustrated by it, but I I'm super (laughs) jealous of it too. Like my chest bumps like a dryer with shoes in it. (laughs) Like fuck, dude. 
That's an amazing simile. That's an awesome. Yeah. That's great. I think it's I think it goes back to that awareness of the reader that is a hallmark of all of Wallace's writing where like you could even hear it in that quote I said before where it's like he's being very academic in his word structure and then all of a sudden he gets to weird pretty hand that has his generation by the throat mm-hmm. like it's like this like oddly formal sentence structure and then he'll toss in a really informal or otherwise jarring turn of phrase where he's like hey i'm still here like i'm talking to you the whole time mm-hmm. and i, I just, ah <laughs> it's you're right it's maddening it's maddeningly uh facile and like he does it with such ease at times yeah you're just like how do you do that in the middle of that sentence you jerk yeah Ugh. Except for Mario, about whom Hal will talk your ear off, it's almost like some ponderous, creaky machine has to get up and running for Hal even to think about members of his immediate family as standing in relation to himself. <laughs> and it's just like... It's it's so... He's got such a unique way of... It, like, that's my favorite sort of simile, metaphor, whatever, is stuff where... You personally would never, ever in a million billion years think about describing it that way. But when you read it 100% exactly, you're like, I know, I know what you mean. I don't even need to, I don't even need to think about it. Yep. Yep. And Wallace does that better than I think any writer that I've ever read. And, and what I don't know is because and i would have to like i guess the only way you would know this is really like going down and studying his drafts or whatever would be to like did that type of turn of phrase just is that just the way his brain works is he i i want to say it has to be because he was relatively um his output was pretty big in terms of essay writing and nonfiction writing. Mm-hmm. So I, like, I can't imagine that he would labor over, and this book is huge. Like, you couldn't write this book and labor over every turn of phrase. That's not possible. Uh, I don't know. I feel like he's the kind of writer who would, though. That's possible. You know? Yeah. Sure. <sighs> it's, just, it's this kind of effortless effort. Yeah. And I think no, there, and there are some very good um, essays about the musical Hamilton, which kind of oh, yeah. talk about the same thing, which we're we're in an age of sort of disaffected irony where trying is not cool. Yeah. What's that? about? And so when something is obviously trying, especially when it can make it seem like it's not trying like that's that gets your attention. Yeah, true. Because even if Truth. you're being intentionally disaffected, like you can be tricked into into caring about this thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, hmm. I don't. I don't know. Do you have any other stuff? Like I'm just. Have I we talked only... about reading it on deadline? Like we talked about it a little bit. It's just it's grueling. Yeah, it's like when you're playing I, I... Oregon Trail and you'd pick the <laughs> profession with no money and you set the pace to grueling and you just have to read it. <laughs> I I guess I would I would rather just kind of close on like some of the melancholy and just like bleak view of the world as we said is like very similar you know it's jarring to read now in in that it's like oddly prescient or relevant um 
But it does also, this book is very steeped in, as we were saying earlier, like the AA program and what treatment does and does not look like. And I don't know. I don't know how this book would be different if it were written now. I don't know enough about, I don't personally uh, seek therapy or, or treatment. Um, so I don't necessarily know, like, I don't identify with it in a tangible way. I know people who do. Yeah. Um, for a variety for like things across a wide spectrum of needs so uh, to me there's always been this like academic engagement with the addiction of this book because it is so woven into the fabric yeah absolutely so this gets into what i imagine will be our last thing since we've been going for a while it has to be probably Um, you texted me before we started recording and, and and asked like to what extent do we want to get into our own experiences with like addiction and depression? Because yeah. I mean, we've, we've gotten reader email about this, about like, just even if it's not the point of the email, just like thanking us for like sharing ourselves. Yeah. Which is not even like when, when we were just recording, this is just like me talking to you and then we put it up on the internet and whatever. Like I don't even feel, feel like I'm <laughs> necessarily talking to 5,000 people every time we put something up. I but, um, tend to forget what we're saying. Oh, absolutely. After we yeah, say I don't it. remember what I said two minutes ago. Um, so this is podcast is about David Foster Wallace's infinite jest. <laughs> we started over. Oh no. <laughs> like, so yeah, like like you said, addiction, depression, just absolutely integral to the the plot and the structure and the characters of this book. Like, can you relate at all? Like, I can start if you don't want to start. What I'll so what I'll say is about myself is that like I've known people very close to me, uh, and certainly a couple members of my family that. And I don't, I don't share this with them. I don't share the same type of anxiety. I don't share the uh, anything that related to, as far as I understand, explicit depression. Though I think there's a part of my life when I was much younger where I was suffering from that. Um, though I don't know that I had the words for it. Um, that I don't think necessarily that that. I identify with explicitly like I don't experience it explicitly rather. Sure. Yeah. And then then to be clear, like this is different from being able to empathize with it. Yeah. 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 Like I, I do not have a personal experience of talking to a therapist of any kind or taking a medication to regulate my body chemistry in a way um, that my body needs. And that's not to say, anything about that experience it's just not a thing i have yeah. like the only version of that i have is when i was in middle school and my grandmother passed away who lived with me my entire life like i went and saw the doctor or therapist or whoever he was at school and that was a really jarring experience because i didn't really know what was going on mm-hmm. like i was being kind of diagnosed by people that i didn't know very well and that was a that was an odd path for like six to twelve months. Yeah, yeah. Of like, and similar, you know. I guess there there is an an analogy to how there because I was experiencing this going into high school. So it was like you have this system that is supposed to be building you up as a person, and 
they assess you and say, well, this is wrong. And like, if you don't have a language for whether or not that, that feeling is okay, it's very, it can be scary. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's my personal experience to it. And then like, which is very shallow compared to what other people have experienced and and people I know well have experienced. Um, yeah, I I I mean, I can't say I have like a deep with addiction in particular, like I, my family, I think a little bit on both sides has like a history with alcoholism. And I know that I know that like my dad definitely saw relatives just get get bounced off the walls by people or like yeah or people who would hurt themselves because Mm -hmm. i don't know because that's just where they thought they they needed to be and um so like that that isn't something i'd struggle with really but like i mean i i have been on antidepressants for about two years going on two years Mm-hmm. And um, we've we've messed with like different dosages throughout, like including like more than I'm taking now, and also trying to ramp back down into nothing. And it's like, and I do like I do notice. I notice when I'm not on them. Yeah, and it's like yeah. it's like not only do I notice and not like it, but like Susanna notices and doesn't like it. Like it's it's. Huh. It's and I do like I still have ups and downs mood wise, but like when I am not, it is it can be debilitating. Like don't want to get out of bed, yeah. don't want to do stuff, debilitating, and sure. it can get triggered by like nothing. Of course, by like having one individual stupid thing go wrong on one day like it'll it can just it it could and it doesn't really anymore like i'm i'm fine but like it could derail an entire week just because you know stuff would get put off and i would like have to just work through it and i don't know it it was not great um therapy i've i have never really gotten a lot out of and i think partly that's a function of just like me not wanting to share stuff with strangers i have a hard time with that and if you're gonna get a lot out of therapy you need to like be (laughs) able to do that yeah of course you need to be like game for that conversation but like i've yeah i've definitely noted i've i definitely take medicine that noticeably affects the way that i feel and act in everyday life sure yeah and that's that was for me like reading this book almost every character has a version of that even if it's not explicitly like i take this medicine Mm -hmm. to do this um and and a lot of the book is painted in this like this person should probably not rely on this thing as much as they do. Well, and and that's part of what the footnotes exist to establish, right? Is that oh, from the get-go, pretty much every yeah, time right? a new drug is mentioned, you get even if the footnote doesn't convey anything at all that's important, <laughs> you just get like here's what this drug is, and like here's the company that makes it. the 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 narrator who is giving you your information about this universe just happens to know like everything about every drug that every character is taking. And as I recall, that almost has this like weird effect of of like letting the footnotes pick up steam where the first like 20 of them feel like, oh, well, he's just going to keep telling me like scientific data that maybe I would want to know. And then all of a sudden they start becoming very 
over time they become much more narratively involved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I don't know. I, I feel like you know, and as we talked, oh God, two hours ago <laughs> about <laughs> Foster Wallace and his struggles and and that he did take his own life and he kind of as you said like there are demons in this book that are just screaming that have the howling they have the howling fantods and we're not even gonna talk about like wallace's phrases that he comes back to over and over again his like invented idioms He's like get your map erased or whatever, erasing yeah. your map which is just yeah ugh. so i don't know it's for me the book was very both instructional and insightful to a, a series of experiences that I don't have personal access mm-hmm. to. And and the rhythm of the prose allows you to kind of vibe with it on a way that, that as we said, like if you take some time off, it can be hard to get back on that train. Yeah, but when yeah. you're on it, it, it goes. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's, I don't know what about that part of this book would be different if it were written today, if at all. I don't know. Like, in terms of how we talk about mental health now, I, I, I don't know enough about that conversation. I think it, I, it, I think it would different. just be, if it were written today, it would just be harder to build a recognizable dystopia because so much about oh God. what we experience day to day is already so explicitly dystopian. Uh, and we've all read the hunger games by now so we just know we're like so inundated with it yeah i mean we already like the hunger games is what's coming in 20 years now this is when (laughs) when wallace wrote it 20 years ago he predicted what would be happening now and so the hunger games are just predicting what is going to happen in like i guess 15 years from now oh god so let's just you and i hope that we are part of the makeup wearing furry class <laughs> and not like the minor children dying class yeah let's hope Andrew. let's hope I, w- I would love to see you at the 10th annual Hunger i would Games love to see you in like, panem and just like hanging out eating a sandwich yeah watching not watching in- stanley tucci on that tv i do like that stanley tucci he's so charming mm, he's such a good guy such a good actor I think that's it. Andrew. I think that's it. Just we should probably we go love, sleep. We love the tooch. You had an okay time. I love that tooch. Sorry, I'm just thinking of Stanley Tucci. Yeah, I had tooch mabooch. <laughs> I yeah this the re, the experience of reading this book was extraordinarily frustrating for me. I've never. I heard the word extraordinary in there. I have. I heard it. I have. I'm gonna excise it. I have never read anything like it sure and part of it i mean part of my frustration with it was just was was having to do it on a deadline but i've like not even reading like mccarthy or i think um reading uh then we came to the end or i I don't remember that's the exact phrasing but like that's that book was written in like 2007 and I think there are bits of it that are distinctly D- oh, DFW in like on purpose. Well, but, and, and you also tackled one Q eight four. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, yeah, which and I think that Murakami has drawn some comparisons in there, but like I have, 
never read a book that's so resisted like having a <laughs> having a through line or like 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 the book has it has sections that are super kinetic and and just super readable but as a whole it's not interested in making you like think about it when you're not reading it's not it's not interested in like making you compulsively want to come back for more it does yeah it does not have a pattern that if you could like your brain is automatically filling in the next sequence right. which is what makes you turn the page yeah which i mean i've read yeah like you said like i've read 1q84 i've read it i've read a lot of long stuff for the show and at some point every one of those books has gotten to a point of no return where it's just like i need to know what happens now and, this and though like, like i did whatever. i did get to a point where i needed to know what happens in this book but the book was never interested in telling me that <laughs> if you the listener have any info and can help andrew out please write in at overduepod at gmail.com hit us up on the facebook the twitter Facebook.com slash OverduePod, Twitter.com slash OverduePod. We've had a lot of lovely mentions and write-ins this week, including folks from the Trinity University Press, Jason, Adam, multiple Chris's in our Facebook inbox. Give them, Chris. Sean. Infinite Chris. Tessa. Infinite Chris. Uh, Rebecca, Liz, Mary-Kate, Melissa, uh, Kendra, definitely RA, who loved Andrew's mom jokes, Natalia, <laughs> Multiple Twitter accounts from our alma mater, Kenyon College. Thank you. Uh, Grace, the Northwest High School. Dave, Sarah, Josh, Miles, Bookmans, Robbie, Brittany Taylor, Starfish Chick, Stephanie, Laura, our good friends CT and KW at the Black Hotties, J Deep, Rob, Eric, Karen, and Melanie. Thanks, y'all, for writing in. As I mentioned earlier, we had some emails from Lynn and Maria. Andrew, you're going to talk to me about this in just a second, but we got some iTunes reviews this past week from Podcast Reviewer 12 and Erica, uh, who both were, were very effusive with their praise of the show. Thank you both. Andrew, where should folks go if they want to know more about the show? If they want to know more, they can go to OverduePodcast.com, where they can find links to iTunes, RSS, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can subscribe to the show through any of those services if you subscribe in itunes like craig said do leave us a rating and review because it makes us feel better it gives us feedback about how we're doing and it also helps other people find the show which is how we grow and you need to grow to survive we're like sharks over here <laughs> just need to keep on keep on moving forward all those sharks getting bigger every day mm, sharks sharks <laughs> i can't talk anymore um, also you, on the like, website we also on the website we have links to our patreon page and to headgum our podcast network thank you so much to them for picking us up a year and change ago because they've really yeah. helped us grow a lot um spreaker our podcast host i want to say we've got some like we got a bunch of spreaker followers if you follow us on spreaker hiss up i want to know what that experience yeah, is what like what mean? are you doing on that yeah, platform what? how's it going for you <laughs> or do you have a cool podcast like hit us up hit us up what else um like are you do we need anything like are what are you reading next week do you know did you talk about our patreon we have a project go patreon.com patreon um we'll read a book that you want us to read eventually <laughs> if you give us money i am gonna read for next week 
the book on which a hit film was based, Howl's Moving Castle, um, that was recommended to us by a Patreon donor. And then uh, so, and, and uh, now that we're over that infinite jest hump, we're also going to program our third annual Spooktober, ooh. a spooky spook fest of spooky books that will span all of the month of October. And we hope that you guys October. are as excited about it as we are. So we'll we'll yep. be sharing the program for that entire month later this week, I hope. Yeah. Um we'll have some more info to share about merch soon. I know we keep seeing saying that, but it'll happen. Like if I keep saying it, hopefully it'll become true. I think that's I think we're done. Like we have to be done. We have to stop. Infinite cast. Infinite podcast. Andrew, I'm so I just want to say, Craig, I don't say this enough. Uh-oh. But I'm I particularly feel it this week. Uh-oh. I'm proud of you, man. What? Oh, I'm proud of that's, you. That's nice. I'm I'm like in the short term proud of you read this book. <laughs> in the long term, I'm just proud of the person you are. I'm proud of you. So, I'm proud of you too, bud. Thanks. Man. I just wanted to let you know. You could you breaking these you gotta you gotta give me like six hours warning if you're gonna have emotions <laughs> at me. Like it's just <laughs> All your sensors are tuned to like goofs and yeah i I don't have enough ram to like process this right now (laughs) okay everybody thank you so much for sticking with us through 200 episodes which is just it's just i can't even i can't again i do not have the ram to process how we've been doing this for this long but um you are the reason why we do it you are i mean we enjoy hanging out with each other but if it weren't for you guys, I think we probably would have petered out a long time ago. You are the wind beneath. Our you wings. are literally the wing between, but beneath <laughs> the wind between our wings. You are our Buffalo hot wings. You are the teriyaki sauce on our wings. <laughs> get, Andrew, get us out of this podcast. All right, everybody. We'll be, we'll be back next Monday unless something untoward happens <laughs> until then. Thank you again and try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.